Hey there, Omaha. Welcome into another episode of Restaurant Hoppin'. I've got a fantastic guest for you today, but real quick before we get to them, I have to tell you about Certified Piedmontese because this is a brand I am so excited about. In fact, I will never forget the first time I had Certified Piedmontese. The crown jewel of my initial visit to Casa Bovina was a beautiful rib cap that was so lean and tender, it was almost silky in texture. The moment that beef hit my taste buds, I was hooked. These animals are raised all natural on a network of family ranches across the Midwest, so Certified Piedmontese is able to cut out the middleman and buy directly from the source. And while I highly encourage you to check out Casa Bovina, you can savor this beef at home, too. Whether you order off Piedmontese.com or by calling one 800 414-3487, your purchase will be shipped directly to your front door. Plus, when you use my discount code HOPPEN, H-O-P-P-E-N, you get 25% off your order. How can you beat that? So what are you waiting for? Get some steaks, burgers, bacon, or other meats and experience the certified Piedmontese difference for yourself today. And now, to my guest. Hey there, Omaha. Welcome into another episode of Restaurant Hoppin'. I'm your host, Dan Hoppin', and my guest today is a man that I have been a fan of for a long time, and he has basically ruined all other sushi restaurants for me. He is the chef and owner of Yoshitomo, which is easily one of my top five restaurants in Omaha. But as much as I love it, we are not here to talk about Yoshitomo today. No, this episode is all about Koji which is his new restaurant that opened in Rockbrook Village this May. David Utterback, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. It's been a while. I know. We were talking about it off the mics. You're one of the OGs that came on this show. Back when yep. this the show was nothing, you were one of the, the people who took a chance and were like, I don't know who this goober with a microphone is, but I'll go talk to him. Are you just like running out of people to uh, have on the show and just... No. Recycling. I mean, any time that I can have a James Beard nominated chef on the show, I don't care if he's been on one time or 18 times, I'm going to say yes. But it's crazy. Like, I did kind of think, hey, like, is there going to be a point where I start running out of people to talk to? And no, there's just constantly new concepts, new restaurants, new chefs, new pop-ups. Like, I can't. I can't get people in here fast. I'm booked out for like the next month and a half. It's, It's amazing. It's awesome. I mean, we are the highest per capita restaurant city, like, in the United States, so. I love it. You are not going to run out. No. And, yeah, I just want to keep telling those stories. So, it, it is crazy. Like, you came on February 13th of 2020. I went back and listened to that episode. So, we're almost talking three years ago. So much is, I mean, that was pre-pandemic. A Think month later, that. the world just <laughs> yeah. fell apart. Oh, my gosh. And I have not mispronounced the word omakase ever since then. That has been seared into my brain. I will never Sweet. S- say it wrong again. But we're not here to talk about omakases. We're here to talk about yakitori. And that word might be unfamiliar to a lot of listeners. So I want to educate them. Just I want to roll out the red carpet for you talking about koji, which is really centered on this type of cuisine. What is yakitori and what made you passionate about introducing it to Omaha? So yakitori is kind of like one of the uh, main types of cuisine in Japan. You know, it's basically a whole section of the food pyramid by itself. Um, And essentially at its core, it's just uh, like grilled chicken on sticks. Like that's it. Tori means chicken. Yaki means fire. Uh, it's it can encompass more than that, but at its very core, it's just 
taking apart whole chickens into small pieces, putting them on sticks, and cooking them really well. What's the origin behind it? Uh, I'm not, as far as, you know, where it came from. Yeah, just, I mean, just the, the concept of it, just breaking down a chicken and cooking it over this charcoal fire at a low heat. Where, where'd that? I'm not sure I could tell you that, um, you know, but in Japan, this is one of those types of restaurants. It's like sushi or ramen, you know, here, you know, you've got the fried chicken restaurant, the cheeseburger restaurant, and it pretty much, you know, every block, it's that, right? And in Japan, it's, it's this, it's a sushi, sushi shop, a yakitori shop, a ramen shop. Every corner, every block, every city, you know, so it's, it's really, really common. Uh, and so the quality levels can, can run the gamut from really, really cheap kind of trash uh, to, to really high-end omakase uh, yakitori meals. Mm-hmm. And obviously, this is something that is very new to Omaha. If someone else is doing it here, I haven't seen it. What was it about this cuisine that made you passionate about saying, I've got to introduce this to my city? So yakitori is extremely rare in the U.S. So it's, I, I think, maybe outside of one spot, maybe in Chicago doing it like we do. I don't really know of another spot outside of a major city, San Francisco, New York, uh, that really tackle it the way we do, like the right way. Uh, any other place that has it, it's usually cooked on a range in a pot or in the oven or, you know, a gas grill. Uh, but for me, it's one of my favorite foods of all time. Whenever I go to another city to eat, I, I look up two things. I look up Korean restaurants and I look up yakitori restaurants. And nine times out of 10, there is not a yakitori restaurant. And so for me, one of the, uh, things pushing me to open restaurants in Omaha is just having access to food that I want to eat and not having to make it myself. Right. <laughs> so like right. it's more selfish. Uh, I just wanted to open the restaurant cause I get to eat it every day now. Right. So that's kind of the, the really the, the, the main reason is I just wanted to eat it. And so now you can too. Well, maybe the original ambition was selfish, but it is altruistic now because I mean, how many hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people are going to get to experience this type of cuisine for the first time that never would have? I would have never had yakitori, and I, I love it now. But I'm really interested in something that you just said. You you just said that there is this place in Chicago is the only other place in the United States outside the big cities that you found that is doing yakitori the right way. So Correct. tell me what the right way so is. So the, the, the right way would be grilling it over binchotan charcoal. Japanese charcoal. You can certainly put some chicken on some skewers, go take them out to uh, your backyard, you know, throw the Kingsford charcoal in there and call it yakitori. But, you know, it's pretty far from, from what the ideal experience is supposed to be. You can cook it on, you know, your stove in a gas range, uh, but all of that is different than, than the true purest experience of cooking on Japanese charcoal. What is it about that Japanese charcoal? So uh, Japanese charcoal, binchotan, there's many different kinds. Very expensive. Uh, the most important thing about it is it burns super clean, so there's no smoke. Uh, so if you use any other kind of charcoal, uh, if it's a cheaper charcoal, it'll create smoke uh, as the chicken fat drips onto it, and it'll also create soot, and that soot will go onto the chicken. Uh, you know, the the... 
the binchotan burns really hot, extremely hot for really long periods of time. So really nice binchotan, anywhere from 600 to 1,000 degrees, burns from anywhere from four to six hours. Uh, and all of that's clean and it's smokeless. So the, the, the chicken itself, it'll drip chicken fat, oil, onto the binchotan. That will uh, ignite. It'll create smoke, but it's chicken smoke. So the chicken gets smoked in its own fat. And that's really the key because if you use anything else, it's either going to get soot or it's going to smell like hickory or maple or something else. And so the reason why binchotan and especially very expensive binchotan is important is you want to eat the essence of the chicken. You, the chicken is being basted in its own juices as you're turning it. It's getting smoked in its own fat. Nothing else is getting in the way of that flavor of the pure chicken. So Yeah, the chicken is like flavoring itself. Yeah, exactly. That is fascinating. That's awesome. So th- there's an elephant in the room that I want to address right away um, as we talk more about yakitori. Koji is related to Yoshitomo, but it's not a sushi restaurant. You can go to Koji and you can get, I think I counted, it's 21 of the rolls that you can find at Yoshitomo. So you can go and have a great sushi experience at Koji. But I think what you want is you want people to come and experience that yakitori. Was that kind of the thinking behind offering sushi there? Is that, hey, maybe somebody comes in because they heard that this is a sister restaurant to Yoshitomo. They want to have sushi. But, oh, there's somebody cooking chicken on charcoal behind the, like, uh, behind the pass here. What's going on? I want to try that too. Yes, absolutely. You nailed it on the head. Uh, yakitori is super rare in the United States. Uh, and, you know, to me, I just didn't think there was going to be enough people just coming in to make a pure 100% yakitori restaurant work. You know, we would, you know, probably be good for a couple of months and it, it might not work. There might just not enough, be enough people uh, coming through the doors. Sushi, though, very flexible. Everyone likes sushi. Uh, Yoshitomo's done very well. So the idea behind the restaurant was let's just take Yoshitomo's greatest hits from their sushi bar, put them in another restaurant, give people a, a reason to maybe come there and then discover this chicken on the side and then build that I- into its own thing. Have you seen that amongst diners or maybe in conversations that you've had with diners where it's like, I didn't know that Yakitori existed and I came in and all of a sudden I tried this and it's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, virtually everybody comes in for a sushi meal and then they have sushi plus yakitori. So, uh, you know, the only folks that I know of that I see often enough uh, come around just for the yakitori is the Japanese population in town, the very small Japanese population. But, uh, you know, they're in once or twice a week because they can't get it anywhere else either. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, what is that like to have conversations with them where there's you know, something that's very uh, special to them, they're, they're getting it, like, legit for the first time, probably. In yeah, America. and, you know, to be honest, like, there's so many yakitori shops in Japan. A lot of that experience, even for them, wasn't even maybe what we're doing. Uh, some of that is, is still even rare because the charcoal is quite expensive. Uh, but for them, you know, they're... They're on cloud nine. You know, you can come get this here. They're super excited about it. Uh, and what's great for us is we can use them to sort of calibrate our food. You know, so whenever we have Japanese guests in, I stop by the table. Hey, 
How was everything? Be brutal. Let me know. Was this good, bad? How could it be better? You know, most are so polite, they just tell you it's good, and some will just let you have it. This wasn't crispy enough. This wasn't salty enough. This is how I like it. And then we just go back, we talk about it, and we fix it. And it's just the, the, the product has improved uh, over the last five months immeasurably because of that. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I really find fascinating about yakitori is it highlights every part of the chicken. I mean, we're as Americans, we're used to eating chicken breast, chicken thigh, chicken wings, stuff like that. And you can definitely find that at Koji. But you can also find, like, you guys do chicken skin. You've also used lesser known, like, lesser used cuts like chicken belly and chicken heart. And as I was doing research for this podcast on on other yakitori restaurants, I saw restaurants that have used chicken heads, brains, tail, testicles, basically, like, you name it. If it's a part of the bird, it can be cooked over this charcoal. How, how fun is that for you to get to highlight different parts of this animal, especially ones that aren't seen on a lot of other menus. It's awesome. So when we started out, we didn't know how to do almost anything. Uh, You know, we could cut a chicken, but it was butchering a chicken like you would learn in a regular restaurant. You just kind of, you know, take the breasts off, maybe take the legs off, and that was kind of it. So when we opened up, we only had access to maybe four cuts, and every week we get access to a new cut. And now I think we're serving somewhere between 15 and 18 different cuts nightly. Uh, most of them live on what's, what's called our, uh, mezurashi menu, which is just rare cuts because we cut whole chickens, you know, it takes four chickens to make one order of chicken heart. So every night we might only have one of those. Uh, and so we don't really put it on the menu, uh, all the time because we're mostly going to be out. And so there's this mezurashi menu where you just ask what's, what's a rare cut, what's a special cut, and we'll tell you what's available for the day. Uh, but now we're doing inner thigh, outer thigh, uh, cartilage, chicken butts, uh, hearts, <laughs> livers, uh, necks, skin, breast, thigh. Oh, wow. Uh, and we're, we're trying to get access to more uh, from, from our our. Uh, from Plum Creek, we're trying to get access to more cuts, like crowns and heads and, and insides and uh, ovaries. But it's super cool because nobody has had, you know, the inner thigh of the chicken and the outer thigh of the chicken, and they taste completely different. Uh, so to be able to dial down on specific tiny cuts on, on a pretty small animal and just try that one cut against something else is really amazing because we just think of it as light meat, dark meat, breast I hate breast because it's this. Well, there's all of this other stuff on the chicken. Well, that that is something that I actually wanted to ask you about because a lot of people, like, when they think of chicken, you know, there's the famous phrase, like, it tastes like chicken. Like, that's what, you know, people will say about, you know, average food or whatever. And I think, you know, for the most part, when we think of different cuts on an animal out, outside of a cow maybe or, or beef or pork, but for birds especially, we don't think of things outside of like white and dark meat at Thanksgiving, at turkey. But at Koji, like when you have the different cuts, it does taste different. The texture is different. Like even if I'm just having, you know, that chicken breast versus that chicken thigh, if I close my eyes, you could tell me it was two different animals and I would believe you. Like how much fun has it been for you to get to experiment with these different things that people aren't used to and get a chance to highlight them and introduce them 
to people. It's so cool because you'll have people, you know, when after they eat one of these specialty cuts, you know, they'll they'll go and try something that maybe they would never order regularly off a menu. Like if you just saw chicken butts on a menu, <laughs> you probably wouldn't just point to that and say, I need to try that. But because we really specialize in these things and they're rare, you know, somebody will just go for it and they'll try it. And oftentimes they'll, that thing was my favorite thing that I had tonight. The chicken hearts were amazing, right? And that's not, it's such a small bite that in other larger restaurants that serve chickens, you know, you wouldn't really ever get access to hearts, right? How could they give you enough hearts to make it worth it for them to serve? How could they harvest enough hearts? So for us, because of the way the restaurant works, we can let you try these tiny bits of this chicken, whereas you could pro- you'd most likely go your whole life and never eat some of these cuts. Hey there, listeners. So Christmas is right around the corner. You got to be thinking about gifts. And I don't know about you, but I can't really think of anything better to get as a present than just delicious, amazing meat, whether that's to be grilled, whether it's to be cooked, whatever it is. And Certified Piedmontese is the place to get it from. When you shop from Certified Piedmontese, you know you are getting quality products that are locally sourced. Uh, The selection is incredible. You can get all kinds of different meats. This is something where you don't know what to get your dad. You don't know what to get family members. You don't know what to get friends. Get them a gift card to Certified Piedmontese. Or if you're having family over, feed them an amazing meal with certified Piedmontese products. And best yet, you get 25% off your online order when you use my promo code HOPPEN, that's my last name, H-O-P-P-E-N, at checkout. So make the holidays truly special this year with certified Piedmontese. And now, back to my guest. Now, you mentioned how far you guys have come since you opened in May in terms of being able to butcher chickens and, and get access to some of these different parts of the body, some of these different organs, how do you educate yourself? Like, how do you go from starting with just the four or five cuts to figuring out how to harvest these different things, how to cook these different things? Like, what's that self-education process? So in the beginning, you know, I have to give 100% of of all of this uh, chicken stuff to our our chef over at Koji, Dylan Espinoza. Uh, You know, I'm on the podcast talking about the chicken, but I'm, I make sushi, man. Uh, I can, I I have the knowledge because I've been watching them and I'm, you know, been there kind of the whole time, but I can't get behind that chicken and do what he's doing, you know? So he's really the star of the show. Uh, But that being said, when we started out, I didn't know anything about it. He didn't know anything about it. I have a whole mess of Japanese cookbooks. We just cracked them open, started screwing around some YouTube videos, uh, more cookbooks and just, practice uh and every week he comes to me and he goes hey chef i got access to a new cut of the chicken try this out and it's amazing uh, and so that's really what it is it's just us teaching ourselves a lot of trial and error absolutely so obviously you know you kind of mentioned it off the top yakitori really does focus on the chicken and the different cuts there but but you also offer different proteins you've offered pork belly uh octopus you have um vegetarian like ones that are focused on skewers that are focused on vegetables how do you decide what and how to skewer and and what else you're highlighting outside of the chicken so for me it's a little 
bit strategic. Um, you know, we rolled out a pork belly item, uh, a, a, a bao bun with the chashu, and we, we have a lot of scrap. A pork belly yakitori skewer is not weird. It, it, it's totally a thing that you can get in Japan. Uh, you know, but that being said, we want people to focus on the chickens. We try to keep it chicken as much as possible, but, you know, there is a whole world of yakitori outside of chicken that does exist, but I also have to be careful what I put on that menu. For instance, we put that pork belly on the menu and now people are ordering way too much of it and ordering less chicken because, you know, pork belly just sounds delicious. And it's familiar. And it's familiar. And so now the conversation is, do we keep that on there because we really want to educate people on chicken or do we, you know, what do we do? So you'll never see a cut of steak. We'll never put a steak skewer on, even though that's a thing, because that's going to take away from what we're actually trying to educate people on. Uh, and so we're, we're trying to fill it out so that you have access to a lot of new and different things. We're trying to uh, dial down and on, on the menu and menu engineer. We don't want to throw anything away. So it's a real balancing act on, on what goes on the menu. Obviously, if we get access to a new chicken part, that's going on the menu. Um, but outside of that, we really have to think about why we're doing it and if it's going to take away from what we're already selling. This is one of the things that I love about you as a chef and why I think your restaurants are so successful. Because, yeah, if you threw pork belly and steak and, I mean, I, I don't even know, ba- bacon, whatever you wanted to throw on those skewers, you could probably sell a lot more of them because Omahans would say, hey, steak, I know steak. I love steak. Give me a steak skewer. But that's not your aim. You're not in this just to make money. You're in this to educate and help people understand something that is really enjoyed in the rest of the world. And if they open their eyes, like there's nothing wrong with steak, but if they open their eyes and try something that is so traditional in Japan, they might find something new that they really, really like. Exactly. Um, You know, for, for us, there is a lot easier path to the dollar than I'm taking. Like, I could serve cheeseburgers in that restaurant and make way more money than I make right now. Educating yourself on chickens, taking them apart bit by bit, you know, cutting them up, skewering them, selling you them in very small amounts. Man, I could make the same money doing almost anything else and make way more money. You know, so this is uh, something we're just passionate about. And, and we need to focus on, on education or else the city can't grow. Uh, our experiences can't grow if, if we are always eating the same thing in town. Mm-hmm. Could not agree more. Now, you mentioned you did not have experience cooking yakitori. Dylan did not have experience with yakitori either. How did you find him? How, how did you decide Dylan is the right guy to to command this restaurant? Oh, man. So... Dylan, sometime last year, about right now, he put in an application for a dishwasher position. What? He, he uh, was from Seattle. He owned a pizza shop, and he relocated here uh, and had some money he had saved up, came in to eat at Yoshitomo, loved it, wanted to work there, sent me an email, put in a, an application, for dishwasher, I needed a dishwasher. I sat him down. He was really put together for somebody 
uh, just coming off the street for a dishwasher position. I had a whole lot of kitchen experience. And, you know, I just told him, hey, man, I know you came in asking for a dishwasher job, but I'm opening up a new restaurant here in a couple of months. I'd like you to just be the chef of that. So he came in for a dishwasher position, left with a chef position. Wow. Uh, and has been one of the greatest hires of my career. Just, I, that's a, that was a home run hire. What makes him such a great hire? He's just really down to earth, uh, level-headed, can, can take um, criticism very well, and, and, and can really focus. You know, he is the one leading this yakitori, uh, you know, program. It would just be easy enough for him to just show up, cut the chicken in the, the, the ways that we have already learned how, and go home and call it a day. Instead, he's constantly trying to educate himself further. And you just don't run, run across a lot of people like that. Mm-hmm. You talked about how, you know, th- there's constant learning that goes on with Yakitori in terms of um, butchering the bird and, and you know, find, finding new parts of it. What about the cooking process itself? Is that something that's difficult to master? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the, the charcoal burns crazy hot. And it's not consistent, right? So as the night goes on, your charcoal burns down. It loses heat. So you have spots on the grill that are super hot. You have spots on the grill that are starting to come down. You also just can't cook the chicken at the same temperature the whole time. So you have coals that are burning off. You have new coals that you've started up. You're either mixing them, you're moving your coals down. So you have colder spot of your grill because you need to cook something longer at a lower temperature you have spots where you need to cook something higher and maybe put more of a char on it and you're on top of that you're having to flip them almost constantly because you want to keep the juices on the chicken and if you just leave them on one side they they drip too much and the the chicken is is it loses too much moisture and it gets dried out you know that dried out chicken breast what we're used to now if you flip that chicken breast on a stick 20, 30 times every minute you're flipping it, the juice doesn't drip off the chicken. It drips back through it and you don't lose that moisture and the chicken stays fluffy. It's really juicy and you don't lose that. So you're constantly battling the grill and the charcoals and the heat source and each item cooks differently. And so it's, I can't do it. <laughs> I make sushi. I just, I don't cook anything. I make sushi, man. Uh, you know, so that's not my skill set. Uh, and it's just amazing, amazing to watch these guys do it. I was going to say, I could like feel my blood pressure rising just thinking about doing this. Like I'm getting stressed out. I can't imagine actually being on that grill and having... 30 tables and everybody's ordering different stuff and there's 18 different proteins that I'm working with and some coals are hotter than other. Oh my, <laughs> like it's amazing. That's wild. Yeah. It's like a steakhouse. You know, imagine that guy, uh, you know, imagine Glenn Wheeler, you know, on the grill at Spencer's 40 steaks on the grill all need to be cooked to different temperatures and having to manage that all. It makes my head spin. I'm so glad that I don't have to do it. <laughs> yeah. And the amazing thing is if you come into Koji, you get to watch the whole thing because it's, it's an open kitchen. I mean, you can sit up at the counter and you can watch right there. Matt is going to be, or excuse me, not Matt, Dylan 
is going to be on the grill or somebody's going to be on the grill right there cooking everything up. It's a like it's dinner and a show. Honestly, I think that's something that's really fun. As you were designing the restaurant, was that really important to you that I want to have this new cooking style? Not only am I introducing people to this food, but also this cooking style. I want them to see it and experience it. Oh, absolutely. It's the same idea at Yoshitomo. We took all of those sushi cases down. We don't have them at Koji. I want you to see what goes into making your food. Uh, and, and if the food just came out of the back, you wouldn't appreciate a lot of the effort that went into it. If you get to see this guy toil over these, these, these coals all night, just covered in smoke, you know, sweating, burning himself, you appreciate the food that came to your table. Uh, it's so easy for us to just forget you know, as we're waiting sometimes a long time for food, that there's somebody back there. They're not doing that on purpose. They're not trying to make you have a bad time, but you can see him. He's in the weeds, man. Uh, he's doing his best to get the food out. And you can see that. You can see the love that goes into that food. Mm-hmm. So a- another thing that I think is important to highlight about Koji, and this is um, similar to Yoshitomo, is that there's a lot of small, hot, and cold plates on the menu as well. As Americans, we're so used to ordering appetizers, entrees, and then if we're still hungry, dessert. Like, it, it is a very coursed-out meal. You expect these things, appetizers in about five minutes, entrees 15, 20 minutes, whatever, then dessert afterwards. But at Koji or at Yoshitomo, you can place your order, you can order everything at the beginning, and it's going to be coursed out throughout the meal. You might get something five minutes later, then the next course ten minutes after that, and... And then you can continue to order as the night goes on, depending on how hungry you are. You're like, oh, that was really good. Now I want to try this. Like, what's kind of the origin of that service style? I I absolutely love it. So a lot of that comes from the way I want to eat. So, you know, a lot of us, one of the main benefits of of having a girlfriend or a wife is you get to go to a restaurant with someone else (laughs) and you get to convince them to order the thing that you also want to try. Yes. And then you split that, right? Uh-huh. I get so much anxiety going to a restaurant where I have to commit to one food item. And it's not that I'm not going to like it. It's just I want to try everything. There's FOMO, yeah. Right. Even if you love your meal, it's like, but what about those three other things I was thinking about ordering? If restaurants gave me the option to order fourth size versions of everything on the menu, I'd do it. And so a lot of that just comes from me wanting to try everything on the menu and us just creating a restaurant where that's the norm, you, you can do that and you don't have to feel bad about that. You, you don't have to, you can certainly convince your significant other into ordering the things that you want to try, but everything's made to be shared. So everything's built in, in, into twos or fours or sixes so that you can share those things and you can try a lot of them. And those items will just move on and off the menu. They're, they're, some are permanent, some are semi-permanent, some are temporary. Uh, but that, that makes the restaurant a lot more dynamic and a lot more interesting than I think the traditional. I came in, I had a giant bowl of pasta, and that's all I got today. Uh, I'd like to be able to go, hey, I ate 14 different things last night, and it was amazing. And that allows you to try more of the menu. Like, it's kind of like you mentioned earlier. If you go into a restaurant and you've never had chicken heart and you see chicken heart on the menu, probably not going to order that if that's the one thing that you might be eating. But if that's, hey, if that's one bite, one of 14, you know, different things that I'm trying, 
sure, let's give it a shot. Maybe I'll love it. Maybe I won't. But at least I can say that I've tried it now. Absolutely. You know, for us, that's maybe one of the secrets of our success. You know, if you committed to just one item, you may not like it. And then you left. Hey, I really didn't like that restaurant. But, you know, you order eight plates. I get eight chances to strike out. You may not like one. You may like the other seven. You like half of them, don't like half of them. I'm 50-50. You'll probably come back to try some other stuff. Whereas, you know, we've all been to those restaurants where we tried that one thing, really didn't like it, not sure if we're willing to commit to another visit. Uh, so that's, for us, it's, it's one of the secrets to our success. Mm-hmm. Now, of all the hot and small plates, they're hot and cold small plates. For some reason, I can't, <laughs> I can't get that phrase out of my mouth. Well, whatever. I have to ask you about the Connie Miso. Because that was like a, both my wife and I agreed, like that was an eye-opening experience. So for someone who hasn't had this, and this is not going to, it's not a traditional description, but like imagine a really small, like hand-sized taco, only the shell is a piece of nori, and the filling is like this wonderful buttery rice cooked in crab fat, and then there's chunks of snow crab and caviar on top of it, and it's served as like a, as a hand roll, it was just unbelievable. Where, like, I just want like the origin story of this dish. Where did it come from? How did you create it? Okay, so it started in the omakase room. Uh, oftentimes, a lot of the dishes at Yoshitomo start off as little otsumami, little plated dishes uh, in the omakase dinner. And eventually, I get tired of serving them. The best ones move on to the Yoshitomo menu. So a lot of the bites, a lot of the plates, they start off in that uh, more rarefied dinner, and then we find ways to make them more accessible through cheaper ingredients or di- different ways of repackaging them. Uh, and so that started off as a, an omakase item. Then it moved over to Yoshitomo, where you can still get it. There's a version of that. It's, it's, it's kani miso, but it's a giant bowl of it. Uh, and so in the omakase room, it was more expensive Dungeness crab. If I did the same dish in Yoshitomo, it would, it would cost way too much. So we moved that to snow crab. Uh, it took off. It immediately became a permanent menu item. People will riot if I take it off. Uh, <laughs> it's something that we're, we're known for now. It's a signature item. It's our potato ole. It's our blooming onion. People come in just for it, so we can't get rid of it. And when we did um, koji, one of the ways that we pivoted from Yoshitomo to make it different is we don't have that bites menu. We don't have that small nigiri bites menu. Uh, And instead, we're trying to build out more of a hand roll menu. So how can we take some of these different ideas of things that we know work and maybe repackage them for this other restaurant? And so that one was kind of cheating. We already knew it worked. We needed hand rolls. And, you know, that's how it landed in its current form at Koji. So, yeah. What about the other hand rolls, the ones that you didn't cheat on? Um, you know, one of them was the Primo. It's got kind of a crab salad and, and some trashy eel sauce and panko, and it's, it's a roll that I used to make for myself uh, at work. It never really lived on any menu. I just thought it was delicious, and so uh, that's how we got there. I really wanted to do a, a Korean tartar bite. Uh, in, in Japan, there's a similar dish called yuke. And so I thought, you know, beef, tartare, it has similar qualities to tuna. If we can kind of put a Korean spin on it, uh, that will work. 
And so that's kind of a lot where, where, where those ideas come from. Spicy scallop, that's a really common hand roll. But how do we make a spin? How do we, how do, we do our own? So let's do a spicy XO hand roll. Uh, and we've got some more coming. I, I think I've got a, a poke one in the works and a, and a couple of other ones going. But the, the hope is maybe we can have a more extended hand roll menu. I would love to see that because the few that I've had have been phenomenal. When did the idea of opening Koji first enter your head? Well, I've been wanting to do a yakitori shop for as long as I've wanted to do Yoshitomo. Uh, but the logistics of that never really made sense. I didn't think there's enough people anywhere to make a, a solo yakitori shop work. And so it always just sat on the back burner. Um, also, I didn't know how to make it. So I would have to invest a lot in myself to figure out how to do that. So really, th- there wasn't any plan to do a koji. Uh, as of last year at this time, koji didn't exist. Someone reached out to me saying that, the Schwartz Delicatessen in Rockbrook uh, was going to not renew its lease, that the space was open. And we weren't really in a great financial place to, to open a new restaurant, still in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, but I went and took a look. The bones of the restaurant are there. It wouldn't take a lot to get it going. And so, you know, really we just, like we did Yoshitomo, we bootstrapped it, bought just the things that we needed to get the project up and going and we'll slowly improve the space over the next five years to get us all the things that we want and need. But from the second I walked into the doors sometime in November, December to construction and opening the doors, you know, it's six months. That feels insane. It, yeah, it really was. So I, I know that, you know, this is something you've been passionate about for a long time. But like we've talked about, it, it's completely new, not only to Omaha, but to most diners. As you're starting to go through this process, is there a thought in your head where it's like, I think people are really going to like this if I do it right, but I'm not sure. Like, how, how do you overcome that fear? Well, that's what the sushi was for, right? So the sushi fixes a lot of problems. Um there's a reason why there are so many sushi bars and they all serve California rolls because that California roll, it makes so much money that you can kind of mess up in a sushi bar and you're going to do okay. Um, it's the cheeseburger. You sell a bunch of them. You make a bunch of money on them. You can afford to take risks in other places. And so sushi, through the whole pandemic, the, the, the sushi is, you know, the, the core sushi menu at Yoshitomo saved us. Sushi is very versatile. It's fine dining. It's medium dining. It's low dining. It's to go. It's hot. It's cold. It's birthdays. It's anniversaries. It's happy hour. You know, it, it can live anywhere. And so it really stood the test of the pandemic. Um, and so if we could anchor all the other things that we would like to try off this core sushi menu, then we can, A, we have some breathing room. We don't have to just roll out this yakitori and have it be an immediate success. We have time to really educate people um, because we know that sushi will pay the bills. And so 
really this is the secret way that we sort of introduce these things. And, you know, it's kind of why you see it in other restaurants. That's why there's a bunch of sushi and Chinese restaurants, sushi and Korean restaurants, sushi and Thai restaurants, sushi and Italian, sushi and pizza. Because the sushi pays the bills, then you can do the, the other thing that you actually want to do. Right. Right? Yeah. That's very similar to um, the chef at Canara and what Ashish has told me. Butter chicken, chicken tikka masala, that's what keeps the lights on, but it's the specials that really excite him. That's what he loves doing, what he loves cooking. And hopefully you get people in the door to try butter chicken the first time, but the next time they come in, they're like, hey, that was super good. Now I can try something different. And you have the added benefit where someone can come in and get a sushi roll, but they can also see, hey, there's a plate walking to another table. What is that chicken meatball on a skewer? I want to try that. And they can still have that in the same meal. It's really a genius concept. Right. Uh, You know, sushi, California roll, those, they fix everything. Uh, They pay the rent. They pay the people. You know, the empires were made on that, that very simple roll. Now, for us, we got rid of it. We don't even have a California roll. So that was a scary day for us when we finally moved it off the menu. Uh, but we've been, we've been very fortunate that people understood that and accepted that. Uh, but, you know, sushi in general is what makes the whole machine work. It's the engine. Mm-hmm. I also feel like, and you can feel free to correct me on this because you're more of an expert in this than I am. I feel like Omaha's acceptance of new cuisines has really expanded over the last couple of years. You see a lot more restaurants that are offering tasting menus, Indian food, vegan food. We've got Nepalese food. We've got creperies. We've got African restaurants. Like, I feel like Omaha, as a dining culture, is pretty accepting and will try new things. Feel free to push back on that if you want, or just how... Does that culture, did that give you like a confidence that this is new, but I think people will try it? It's, it's growing for sure. I mean, if we even look at the city 10 years ago, a lot of these things didn't exist, right? And while we are, you know, per capita, one of the, the highest number of restaurants per capita in the United States, uh, we're still a fairly small city. That being said, you know, if you're the only Nepalese restaurant, for a city of 1 million, then it doesn't take that many people to fill the doors or fill the seats, right? Now, if there's five Nepalese restaurants, then they're all fighting for a lot of the same clientele. And so you can really thrive as one of the only of a certain kind of cuisine in the city because there just isn't any other access to it. Uh, And, you know, even for us at Yoshitomo, when we opened up, that original menu looked a lot different than it did today. I wasn't as uh, confident that we could take the chances that we did. Um, and, you, you know, we had the California roll. We had a lot of the, uh, the trappings of a, of a common sushi bar. We put ginger and wasabi on the table. There was soy sauce there. You could, you could ruin sushi in, in 50 different ways if you wanted. And I was very hesitant about removing those items Although I wanted to and I knew the, the restaurant that I wanted, I was afraid that even we weren't quite ready for it. And, and as we did those things and took those chances, people just went for it. And I, and I think as we take more chances and as, as we become more successful doing these different things, it 
hopefully gives other chefs who have an idea of taking that chance uh, to just go ahead and do it, right? Like, look, it worked for this other restaurant. I should be able to do it too, right? And so you'll see it. It, it works. It works on a small scale. You can open a 500-seat Momo restaurant, right? Uh, but you can do a small little restaurant that is efficient and it works and uh, I, I, we're definitely as a city embracing these different cuisines and, and we are a much different city than we were 10 years ago. It's amazing. I think we're better for it. And I thank you and, and people like yourself for taking the chance and saying, you know, I don't know if people are going to like this, but I'm going to give it a shot and hope that they do. Uh, so I am really, really fascinated to get into your background here because I think it's going to be really interesting. But before we do that, I want to give a quick shout out to one of my awesome sponsors, and that is Lone Tree Foods. As any listener of this podcast knows, I absolutely love food, but I am not a great cook. If I'm going to have a great meal, I usually have to go out to get it, unless I'm using some products from Lone Tree Foods. Recently, my wife and I savored some New York cheddar cheese curds with applewood smoked prosciutto. Oh, just spectacular. These are the types of products you just don't find at the grocery store. That's because Lone Tree Foods is a local food distributor that connects small farms to restaurants, schools, and even you. Check out LoneTreeFoods.com to find unique local ingredients that help take your cooking game to the next level. And now, back to my guest. May 7th was opening day. That was the first day Koji was open for business, customers coming in the door. What do you remember about that day? It was a disaster. <laughs> I mean, if you... If you showed up that day, that weekend, even those, that, those first two weeks, you know, we really didn't have a lot of experience. The sushi bar was fine. You know, we had a, a core group of guys that uh, just held that all up. But really, you know, in the kitchen, we had not really discovered the identity of, of that side of the restaurant. We knew there was yakitori. Uh, but beyond that, there wasn't much that... We, we, we didn't really know the direction that it was going to go. It was kind of a fake it till you make it, feel it out. Uh, that opening night, we switched to a new charcoal that was uh, a lot nicer than what we had been using. And that stuff burned three or 400 degrees hotter than what we had previ previously been using the night before and what we had learned on. So the restaurant immediately filled up. The skewers went on the grill they all caught on fire. All the meat dropped into the charcoal, started putting out the charcoal. Immediately, we were just in the weeds. Uh, and Dylan did a great job, pulled it all out, got new stuff on. The next night was, okay, here's what didn't work. This stuff was too hot. How do we fix that? How do we work on it? And it took us a couple of weeks to figure out that charcoal. Uh, and yeah, that, that first night I was... I was all smiles at the table, but it was, it was, I was sweating underneath my collar for sure. Uh, but, you know, we only put out good food. If it wasn't great, we didn't send, sell it to the table. Uh, it was just a lot of struggle on the back. I think this is a really important point to make, though, because I see a lot of times, especially when a restaurant is very anticipated uh, prior to its opening, people are really excited. You know, they see teases on social media. They're like, oh, I can't wait to go. And they make a reservation for, if not opening night, maybe opening weekend or the next weekend or something. 
And then they come away and they're just like, man, I had such high hopes for that place. And it just, it wasn't quite what I was hoping for from it. And in some cases, that is just, maybe the restaurant is never going to live up to those expectations. But so many times, there is such a feeling out process. You have to figure out cook times. You, even if you know exactly how to cook a dish, it's different when you're cooking it, you know, with a, a full dining room and, and the bullets are flying. How important is it to learn to exercise that patience, especially with a new place? So us, we, we really didn't push uh, that opening too hard because I just didn't want to fall into that pitfall. And for new restaurants, you know, if you ever go within the first two, three weeks, a month, two months of a new restaurant, be kind. I mean, we, we are small restaurants. We, we, we're not big. We, we're, not a, we're not franchise. We don't have 10 locations. We don't have money to fall back on. If you think just logistically from a money side, what it costs for us even to open that restaurant, even if we gave 10 people two weeks worth of training, six to eight hours a day, 15 to $17 an hour, not even the cost of the food, not the rent, not the other things that you're buying to open up that restaurant. I mean, you're talking $20,000, $25,000 to train somebody. You haven't even made a dollar yet. And so we just don't have that kind of money. So we trained people, a handful of people in really pivot positions. And then we have to bring other people on pretty close to open and try to give them enough reps that maybe they can do it on opening night. But we're really counting on that, that, that soft opening in that first week or two to train people. You know, so if you're coming into a restaurant that's been open for a week or two and you didn't like it, give it another shot. I'm sure in a month or two they're going to figure it out. If they don't, then, yeah, give up. But, you know, larger franchises don't have that challenge like we do like smaller restaurants do we just don't have the money in the bank to do that uh and so it's a challenge to to get a new restaurant off the ground especially a small one when do you feel like you found that rhythm at koji where it was like this is what i wanted koji to be it's really only recently um as we've been working a lot of the new dishes i would say that maybe two two and a half maybe three months ago we really turned the corner in Yakitori where I remember, you know, every day I eat almost one of all the skewers, uh, mostly because I, I just love it and I need it. But <laughs> I got, we got to calibrate. We got to see where we're at. And we're always making changes to that program. But about three months ago, I ate a whole, a whole order, a whole rail uh, of, of our Yakitori. And I said, Dylan, this tastes like Japan. Like we're there. Like this tastes like it's supposed to taste. Uh, And so we knew that we had the yakitori side sort of on the right track. On the kitchen side, we were still struggling to find the identity of it. Um, And now I think we're we're really figuring that out. Um, We've got a lot of new things coming on in the menu recently uh, that uh, I'm really excited about. We're we're doing a lot more of of what's called wafu Italian, which is basically... um, Japanese version of Italian food and it's it's super it's super cool um well tease some taste buds what are um, we talking so about like here? a couple of weeks ago we rolled out these um these gyoza these um pork pot pot stickers 
except normally they'd be fried and steamed um, and then served with a little like uh, sour ponzu dipping sauce. These, we make a, a, a pork chicken pot sticker. We steam them, but then we serve them with a, a chicken liver bolognese, right? Uh, I saw these on Instagram. Yes. They looked incredible. And, you know, and so we're working on, you know, like an udon carbonara. And uh, we've got a, a polenta dish coming out maybe this weekend, like a, a, a traditional okonomiyaki Japanese pancake. But instead of making the actual pancake, we're making a polenta cake. So it's Japanese food or Italian food with one or the other's twist in it. And it's just food we, we don't have access to. Right. And it's, it's a lot more fun. It's all the stuff that I wish we could do at Yoshitomo, but we don't have a hot kitchen. So we're never able to cook anything. Now I have a a range. I have a a stove and an oven. You just got a new playground. Imagine the possibilities. See, this is exactly why Koji's service style is so perfect because you just mentioned four or five dishes. I want every single one of those right now. And at most restaurants that would mean, well, I got to go four or five times. Nope. I can come in one time and experience all those things and just stuff my face exactly with deliciousness. Exactly. And who doesn't want that? Yeah. All right. As we wind down here, I, I've got my questions that I like to ask everybody who comes on this podcast. And I believe I asked you last time, but we're talking, that was a lifetime ago, essentially. It was before COVID. It's a whole pandemic ago. Right. So I want to get new perspective on it. The two questions. First one. What is one thing that you feel like diners don't understand about the restaurant industry that you wish they did? I think my answer may be the same as it was before, and it's that we're never intentionally trying to give you a bad experience. You know, uh, even if you do have one, you didn't walk in and everybody in the back, you know, pointed you out and said, Let's really screw that up. No one. <laughs> that guy, he's having a bad meal. Right. No one shows up for work wanting to do a bad job. For whatever reason, maybe you're having a bad day. Something goes wrong. Something gets missed. You know, but a lot of times we take it personally. Um, you know, you're sitting at the table. It's taken longer for, for, than it should or than you think it should for food to come out. And you think they're doing it to you. Like it's, it's, it's on purpose. What's going on? I see everyone else eating. No, if I could get the food out immediately, you know, just boom, 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 boom. I wouldn't want to make you wait. I need to turn the table so someone else can sit down and order and eat too. I don't want to keep you there a long time. And so really, I, I think just be, you know, be compassionate with, you know, what else is going on in that restaurant. And if, if you don't feel like you're getting what you need to keep you happy, ask to talk to somebody, right? Um, and they can, they can tell you why or, or maybe we did forget. Sometimes things just happen and you'll have a ticket, it gets dropped, it's sitting behind a cooler or it's sitting on the floor and it isn't getting made and we did forget about it. Uh, and so, you know, be an advocate for yourself. Right. I love that. And then to get you out of here on a positive note, what's your favorite part about being in the hospitality industry? Oh, it's, it's being with people when they're having the best times of their lives. No, like I said, on the flip side, you don't go to a restaurant wanting to have a bad time. I get to be there when people are celebrating their birthdays, anniversaries, 
grandma and grandpa's in town, people are having a great time and I get to be there and I get to talk to them and, and I get to help make that better. Um, and so for, for me, you know, what other job do you get to maybe a clown? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, what other job do you get to be there when seven, someone's having the best time? Um, and you get to be ex- part of that experience with them. Uh, that's the greatest part about hospitality. Wow. That, that's one of my favorite answers I think I've ever gotten to that question. Definitely the first clown reference we've gotten on the Restaurant <laughs> Hopping mean, Podcast. I don't like clowns. Uh, I'm, I'm sure someone does, but. I'm not a fan either. I don't really understand the appeal at all. But I'm but, trying to think of another profession where you're just there when someone's having a great time. I wanted to say sporting event, but a lot of times people are in pain at a sporting event. As 50% their team. of the people yeah. there are in pain. So actually that's not true. Yeah. Rest, yeah. Restaurants are just the, uh, the great happiness creator. So I, I got to let you go. You've got a busy day of stuff to get to, but this has just been such a joy. You have completely changed the way that I look at sushi. Now you've opened my eyes to Yakitori in a way that, I probably never would have gotten a chance to experience without Koji. Thank you so much, Dave, for everything that you've done for Omaha's restaurant scene, but also just for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity. Of course. The microphone will always be open for you if you want to come back in another two and a half years. So mixtape drops next week. I'll come back and do a... (laughs) All right. Omaha, as always, thanks for eating with us. A Huda Media Production.